Welcome to Breaking the Mold, exploring the people and issues fueling business today. It's business time. It's business time. It's business. It's business time. And now, let's break the mold. Welcome back to Breaking the Mold. This is Evan Roth, your host, joined today by guest co-host Daniel Roth. Hey, great to be here. Thank you for having me back. Dan, it feels it feels like being a co-host is something that, as a guest co-host, it feels like it's very natural to you. I don't know. It feels like it's not something that you're just doing periodically. It feels like you're a regular. I am starting to feel that way. Yeah. But uh, I have to say, the day before, I'm always nervous. Am yeah. I going to get the call? Am I going to be asked to come back? Yeah. You never know. And I think it's sort of the 1099 economy. You get used to that kind of on-demand. <laughs> I'm like, I feel like an Uber host. You call me up, I come in and do this. Yeah. I- I'm impressed that you were both able to work in a tax form and also something in media. You into, into your, no, I mean the, the, the 1099 economy. That's I the, haven't. That's that's how we're all be working. This is the idea that you know you don't have a permanent job. You basically are all freelance. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And does that affect your loyalty? You know, I mean, you're not uh, you're not beholden to anyone other than yourself. I am 100 percent loyal to you and the show yeah. for the next 30 minutes. Ah. What more can we ask? That's right. Thank you, Dan. Mm-hmm. Special show today, Dan. You're lucky to be here. Professor Dan Ariely is going to join us for the interview section. Awesome guy. You know him already. I do. LinkedIn influencer. Big fan. He has got quite a few followers, um, both in LinkedIn, but he also is a prolific writer. He is uh, in the journal every two weeks in a Ask Dan column, which you think of him as the modern day Ask Abby. Remember when you used to call in to Ask Abby and and, a- and ask her things like, you know, when are you going to hit puberty? Those kind of questions. Are you like, saying, think of that for Dan. I Are you saying Ask Gabby? Is that someone in your era that you would call? When I was growing up, there was Abby. Ask Annie. Annie. Yes. Now, I think when you were a kid yeah. and like the Howdy Doody show was on and there was that Ask Gabby part of it, that's probably what you're confusing it with. Yeah. No, uh, um, Howdy Doody was sort of like, for me, kind of what brought me to radio. Is <laughs> This show is a, clearly just came right out of that. It was Ask Gabby. I can't remember now. Ask Annie? Ask Abby? Who was it? Abby. Abby? All right. We've, we're consulting with I know what it was. There was a fortune columnist named Ask Annie. That's what it was. <laughs> Workplace issues. <laughs> That's who I relied on. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's good. We each need to have people who <laughs> motivate us, and I'm glad that you had your fortune column where the rest of the world had Ask Annie. So Ask Dan, totally different different world, um, writes a lot on irrationality, behavior irrationality. His, um, his perspective on behavioral economics has really revolutionized the field, and he has been involved in a number of different social experiments that and you take the way in which people act and behave and then turn it on its head in terms of actually then implicating some of the business decisions that people make. So Dan is a nice blend between being sort of the theoretical in the classroom thinker to practical how to actually apply it to business. And he has an amazing life story, which we'll, which we'll obviously want to get into because that's what we do. Absolutely. Dan, let's talk. Let's talk. Business topic of the day. Everywhere. Sports section, business section, front section, FIFA. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And, and, and let me just start with the fact that we're about to talk about soccer for Dan. Let's just explain it. It's, it's a round ball. It's um, it's uh, it's played by 11 players on each side. This, they this is when I get other. interested. Yeah. I, I, I can tune out sports until 
it actually gets interesting. This is interesting. Mm-hmm. Why is this interesting to you? Corruption at the highest level. And yeah. you know what's interesting is this is a – it's been an open secret for so long. Right. And the only thing I – when I read the sports section, besides that of reading it to my kids, I am – I'm looking for, you know, great stories. And one of the great ones of the last couple of years is how – what a horrible organization FIFA is. Mm-hmm. And everyone's known it. People have talked about it openly. Now, all of a sudden – People are at the highest level getting arrested, and there's two interesting things about that. Number one, why is how is it possible that something that has been an open secret finally turns into a criminal act? Mm-hmm. When does that? When do you cross that line where everyone says, "Oh, not only do we know about it, we're going to do something about it"? That's one. Number two, there are so many opportunities in business to make money that don't require you to have payments in cash stacks in in the way that these guys are alleged to have done it. Mm-hmm. And I, have, I think I have a perfect example. Let me run this by you. Let's think of another industry like FIFA, another group that is not well-liked by consumers, yet they have to be part of that business. In the same way that everyone goes to the soccer matches, everyone flies on airlines. And the airlines have managed to find great ways to pull money out of your pocket in the same way that I believe these FIFA guys could have done legally. Mm-hmm. So as mm-hmm. an example, I, I lost my my platinum status recently, and now I'm in. Now every time I go, I know Dan. I'm, I'm sorry. Can we give him a moment of silence here and breaking the mold? I'm just glad there are Kleenex in yeah. the office, uh, and we can both dry our eyes here a little bit. The um, the and when you go to go buy a ticket, they say you know spend twenty dollars and you can get more legroom. Spend fifteen dollars and go to the front of the line. Spend a hundred dollars and get more points this time. Now why would if FIFA was so if these executives were so desperate for extra income for everything they did, why couldn't they have said, all right, you want to bid on the World Cup? It is $1 million to submit your bid. It's $5 million to talk to an executive here about your bid. It is another $15 million if you want us to review it after we've turned you down. So just, well, the Chinese menu option to, to, oh, yeah. you know, to they corruption. Just, uh-huh, they just I keep like layering that. on. And guess what? Totally legal then. They get to line their pockets. The people have to do it anyways. They don't become any less hated than they already were. <laughs> and they get to avoid jail time. Yeah, I, that, that seems to me to be a simplistic and... Uh, an idealistic way of being able to handle corruption. I'm not sure idealistic is the right word for it. I'm just saying, if they wanted to do it, why wouldn't you do it this way? Here, here, here's my thinking, and yeah. I, I love the analogy to the airline industry, and I'm sure that the CEO of United would appreciate being we'll have him on. Can, compared to we'll Seth Ladder. and see what yeah. he thinks. <laughs> is, I, maybe this goes to kind of my philosophy and kind of business structure, which is that there are cultures of organizations, and those cultures can be, and the organizations can be not-for-profit, they can be uber-profit, they can have anywhere in between, but they're all run based off of a certain ethos. And FIFA's ethos has always been one where a incredibly strong um autocratic structure led by Sepp Blatter for however many terms he's on. I think this is his fifth. Yeah, it's his fifth term. So four terms of re-election, right? Right. You you don't get term limited out in FIFA. Um, His view is that, I mean, it is a monopoly. There is no substitute. And I think that's what it really comes down to when you don't have any, when, when there's no alternative. I mean, even... There's no alternative in the sport, but there's also no even alternative in leadership. It tells you how autocratic he is. That the only person who's running against him is a 39-year-old Jordanian who has no business or management experience, and he's getting some he's getting some traction, but he's going to lose roundly because Sep has all of the other corrupt organizations right, already there. So 
there's no substitute. And I think you're seeing this a little bit in the airline industry, which is that you you went from a highly regulated, fully regulated industry to a deregulated industry with a lot of fragmentation. And now that fragmentation is slowly being consolidated to, in the States, three or four major carriers right. or spirit. And if you're a business traveler and you want to be able to take advantage of having a flight that's on time and where you're not paying to go to the bathroom, you you know, you don't have that many options right. anymore. So with FIFA, the idea that they can control the ethos. They don't why why would they need to have a menu of what is acceptable or not in terms of being able to take handouts? Because they're gonna to go to jail. They could have done it because exactly what you're saying, they have a monopoly, they could have charged all these things, they could have been totally above board. I'm not saying they should have, I'm saying it's still disgusting to do it. But they could have done all of this in a way that wouldn't have violated any laws. I, I, I've, it, there's no way that the excess to which they're accused would have been accepted by any jurisdiction, Swiss, international, UN, or the U.S. I mean, this is right. Well, let's let's be. This is a Department of Justice um, um, initiative. This is a U.S. initiative, and I love the politics that are getting involved and Putin coming in and saying this is right. you know overreached it, by the U.S. Yeah, it, it actually is a perfect episode of House of Cards, right? <laughs> right. I mean, it's like you know, it's it's the real life version of it, and that. I think corrupt organizations will eventually be exposed and that having some transparency about what you do and don't get paid for as part of your vote to who's going to be in the two, who's going to get the 2018 World Cup or 2022 World Cup is not going to be sufficient for the the appetite that these diplomats have for lining their own pockets. Yeah, that's probably true. They couldn't have paid for what was the guy in the U.S. The guy who t- who turned um, Chuck Warner. No, no, Warner's uh, in in Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, yeah, right, this right, right, is right. the guy in the U.S. who was who wore the he had the wire in his keychain and would drive around the city going to fancy restaurants on his little scooter. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's really like all these characters. This is going to be a great movie one day. It, it is. Right, let me ask you another question about it. Yeah. Do you think the brand should pull out? They're saying the FIFA's lost about $400 million in brand value visas, now threatening if there aren't changes they're going to pull out. Um, you know, McDonald's, these are major blue chip sponsors. Do they all have to pull out or do they stay in? Okay, I'll answer that with an anecdote. So on Tuesday, uh, two days ago, I went for a run with Lance Armstrong and then went for dinner with him with a small group of people. And um, the question that came up, and it was an honest conversation, but the question came up about his sponsors and his understanding that once Nike pulled out, Trek had no other option other than to back out. And he, he said, I'm, you know, I don't blame them, you know, said it from a... a, a um, place where he was kind of putting it at arm's length, more le- less talking about himself, but more kind of if he were if it were a case Outside study. Looking in, I exactly. Right? Say the same thing. So the question is: it's always an economic question, right? Visa is not making this decision without thinking about the economic impact. It was very easy to dump Lance because you're talking about a fringe sport, you know, that maybe has a little bit of traction, but in terms of having every four years and a lot more often with a lot of these other the um in an in a world where everything's getting broken down where 
sponsors have reach very, big, big crowds it, at once. Yeah, exactly. It's the life you're living, right? right? How, how do you do it? You know, just by having something infiltrated in your Twitter feed is right. not is not what the visibility that these sponsors get. Yeah. So they're going to talk out of the both sides of their mouth. Right. They're going to say that we hope that FIFA cleans up the corruption. Yeah. And at the same point, and saying we'll reserve judgment for it. Right. And then the you know the the accountants with their blue eye shades are figuring out what the impact would be to the probably bottom line. They're probably renegotiating their contracts in the meantime. That's a good point. Maybe use it as leverage yeah. to be able to, to to renegotiate. But it will be there's a lot of I mean there's a ton of sponsors in FIFA. I mean this you know FIFA is a non for profit organization, Amazing. right? Not for profit, but they have a billion dollars in reserves. That's what SEP calls it. Wow. I I, I don't know what even Apple doesn't think that the cash that they have is needed for reserves, right? For a organization of FIFA's size and for the questionable actions of their members to think that they can pull off, that they can somehow manage to convince, you know, every other, you know, hopefully smart thinking human being that a billion dollars still constitutes a, a you Look, know, not for profit. Those jer- it's not cheap to wash those jerseys. And I think that, I mean, I could see them go burning through that quickly. They do. They do burn through. And it's no different than what like your household budget is. You That's know, right. having a billion dollars in reserves for a rainy day fund. That's right. You Who gotta knows? have it. You gotta have it. You Damn. never know what's going to happen. Absolutely, Dan. Big rainstorm. Yeah. You were out gutters. on the roof. Yeah, Gutter? absolutely. How, how much were the gutters to fix? Uh, we're, we're waiting on the estimate, but it's looking like a billion. A billion dollars? <laughs> <laughs> I got to call into SEP right now to see whether I can borrow some. So, Dan, it's an, it's an interesting topic. I think that this is the start of what will be a much bigger discussion about sponsors, about whether it reaches to the top, about whether FIFA can, you know, can reconstitute as an organization that people so believe in the sport and then can also believe in the organization that's running it. Um but I admire the Department of Justice in incredible the, in in their, and Loretta Lynch. This is her first job as you know as as head of Justice Department, right? This is she's come from a Brooklyn DA. But she was investigating this. As, uh, the, this came out of the Brooklyn office, right? But that she was willing to take it from Brooklyn right. to DC, yeah, exactly to the rest of the world. And I love and it is a great movie. The yeah. idea of them swooping into this elegant Fancy Swiss hotel, hotel, right? And the the the, and the the concierge calling up and saying, "If you don't open your door, uh, some gentlemen are going to kick it down." But he said it very politely. <laughs> right, very politely. Sure, sir. Sure. <laughs> it's really shocking. It's a great. It's it's a fascinating story. I actually think FIFA pulls out of this with a much better structure. I don't see how they can't not do that. I think that's a rosy scenario, and I'll take the other side of that. All right. All right. We'll I'll see you in four years. <laughs> so we will be back with Dan Ariely for a provocative conversation, um, and we hope that you'll join us online to continue the conversation. We are at Roth Evan on Twitter, or if you feel, feel free to email us at btmshow at icloud.com. You're listening to Breaking the Mold. You can follow us on Twitter at BTM Show, or you can email us at btmshow at icloud.com. Now, more of Breaking the Mold. Welcome back to Breaking the Mold. We're on to our interview portion of the show, and we welcome the first full-fledged professor into the studio. I specify full-fledged because Dan and I act like professors in our ability to talk confidently about things we don't know anything about. 
So while demeaning the profession, I do actually greatly respect you, Dan Ariely, for your expertise and relevance and insight into human behavior. Dan Ariely has two PhDs, a master's. He's a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University. He's the author of the bestsellers Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrationality, and The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Dan, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So let's start with you, rather than all those hapless human beings that you experiment on. <laughs> if you could give us a little bit of your background, both in, in Israel and in, in the States. Sure. So actually, I was born in the U.S., and then when I was very young, my parents moved to Israel, where I grew up uh, happily and uh, with not, not that many concerns. And then uh, in my late teens, I got badly injured. So I was next to one of these magnesium flares. These are one of the bombs that the military sends up to the sky to light up a battlefield, so lots of magnesium. And one of those got exploded next to me. And as a consequence, I was burning about 70% of my body, and I spent about the next three years in hospital. And hospitals are places where you could observe lots and lots of irrational uh, behaviors. And lots of things were kind of interesting and in terms of observation, but maybe the two big changes for me was the first one is that I was really consumed every day with the question of bandage removal. So imagine your body was covered with burns and somebody had to take the bandages off. And the question is, what is the right way to do it? And the nurses thought that the right way to do it is to rip the bandages off as quickly as possible. They would submerge me in a tub with, with water to try and make it sticky a little less. And then because, you know, the burned skin or flesh is kind of uh, bleeds so that the bandages would really adhere to the raw flesh. So they would have to rip it, rip it off. And, and Is that a particular Israeli technique kind of consistent with their culture? Uh, not so much. Uh, it turns out it was very, very common at, that, at the time to uh, decide to try to minimize the duration of the pain, hmm. right? If you think about it, there's a question of what's more important the intensity of the pain or the duration. And you basically ask yourself, what is, what should you try to minimize? Mm. And the nurses at the time thought that the right way to do is to minimize the duration, even the expense of the intensity. Uh, later on, when I started studying at the university, I did experiments on pain. I, not, I didn't burn people, but I, <laughs> I, bought a, I bought a carpenter's vice. I bought one of those devices that you buy to put pieces of wood together, and I set it up in the lab, and I invited people to come in and put two fingers in this vice, and I would crunch their fingers a little bit, and I would try different durations and intensity and patterns over time. And, and what we've learned is that you can take a painful experience and make it twice as long, you don't make it twice as painful. Huh. You change the amplitude, now you change it dramatically. Hmm. Right, so the nurses were wrong. And um, by the way, uh, the nurses were wrong in multiple ways, but one of the things that have had tremendous advances in burn treatment is that now, and, you know, I go back from time to time to visit the burn department. Now people in my condition, they just basically give, put them in an induced coma for a few months. Wow. Right? They, there's no reason to, to suffer this pain on a, on a daily basis. So now they, they just do it something else. Uh, also, when I was a burn patient, uh, there was this fear that people in my situation would get addicted to morphine uh, or, you know, other drugs. So they tried to minimize the amount of painkillers we, uh, we got, which... Of course, you know, it was very, was very painful. Another, by the way, interesting thing that happened in the, in the burn department. So imagine that you kind of plucked out of life and you, you go into this bed and you were there for quite a few years and nothing is normal. Nothing is normal. I, I didn't eat for months. I had a tube that would feed me. As I was getting a little bit better, things were becoming, um, I, had, I had capacity to think about other things. So, you know, 
for three years I wasn't in that the same amount of pain every time. Uh, it, it really changed dramatically over, over the years. And uh, once I was kind of separated, but not in this uh, tremendous agony all the time, that's when I started reflecting on, on life. Um, there was something uh, called uh, pressure bandages. So pressure bandages is a little bit like a, a Superman uh, outfit. So um, if you have like tights, basically they have these tights that are a bit more coarse and a bit more heavy than regular tights. Um, and they make these things specially for burn patients and they fit all over the place that you have burns. So I have burns all over my body. So I had um, tights for my legs. I had the shirt with long sleeve shirt, uh, long sleeve, long sleeves. I had gloves, I had the mask. So I basically was this brown kind of creature completely covered with this, um, with this, um, you know, tights-like uh, things. The only things you could see were holes for my eyes and mouth and my ears. And that was basically it. The rest of it was this brown uh, fabric. And th that was a tremendous experience because I would, I would, even when I would go out, kind of nobody could see me, right? I was in this um, outfit. I was invisible. Nobody would know who I am. I mean, people looked, of course. Um, but it, it created this tremendous separation, right? I was here kind of, there's no way that you can feel normal uh, with those things. And university was the same thing. You know, I started studying at the university, but I couldn't do anything that the rest of the students were doing. You couldn't I, do it because you were behind in your studies or because you weren't seeing the world they were seeing it? So, you know, simple physical things, right? I couldn't pick a pen and write. Um, I couldn't sit in the sun like other students. Uh, these tights, by the way, were also incredibly hot. So you can imagine. So every moment I had that we just escaped to a room with as much air conditioning uh, as possible. So my life was just very, very different in every aspect, uh, mm -hmm. allowing me to observe a bit more, I think, about what was going on. I think there's a question about how much of um, an expertise you can have in writing about other people's issues if you haven't walked in their shoes, you know, the, you know, member of the top 1% writing about wealth inequality. Do you think you could have had the um, the ability, clearly that was, you know, when you're talking about your background, you had the drive as a result of the pain that you went through. But do you think you'd have had the ability to be able to do the work that you do now if you haven't had, if you hadn't, hadn't gone through it? Yeah, so, you know, so science is a very interesting uh, process because the moment you come up with a research question, um, you declare it and how you're going to test it exactly, and then everybody could carry it out. But the question is what kind of questions you start with. Ask. Right. And and this is what is called an NP-complete process, right? So it's a, it's a search process that is incredibly complex. Like, what's an interesting question? Imagine I ask you, like, what's an interesting question? It's very hard to figure out. So partially, science is based mm. on a non-scientific process of coming up with an interesting question, which I think is more of a, like an art, right? So if you, if you think about life in hospital or life as somebody with an injury or life as somebody who's looking at the world a little bit from the outside, I think I have slightly uh, different questions that other people ask. And I'll give you one example. One of the things I got in, in hospital was a liver disease. I got a blood, bad blood transfusion. And they couldn't figure out what it was. Uh, many years later, I had another flare-up. I checked myself into hospital. They told me I had hepatitis C. Okay, so, uh, and they, they asked me if I want to join a, an exper experiment to see whether interferon is going to help with hepatitis C. And interferon is a medication with lots of side effects. So I said I'll join it because I didn't want liver cirrhosis. And 
these medications were very unpleasant. So I would come home in the evening, and if I took this injection, I would get really sick. Headache, vomiting, fever, shaking, stuff like that, for basically the whole night. Right? So now, imagine yourself into this situation. You come home, and you know that if you'll take this injection three times a week for a year and a half, you might not have liver cirrhosis in 30 years. But every night is going to be certainly incredibly miserable. And now the question is, would you, would you take it? Now, if you think about it, this is the same problem of self-control we all face. Right? This is a question of doing something unpleasant now for the future. It's the same question about dieting and saving and not texting while driving. Right? It's all about now versus later. Now, this is a big one right? because we don't always have the same terrible uh, side effects. But if you think about it, this is like a magnifying glass, right? So this was an experience I, I went through and I started thinking about this. But sometimes I think with, with extreme experience and something is so salient that it lets you uh, look at things with much more clarity, it's like, like a microscope. Do you, are you surprised? So much of your work is focused on the individual and you talk about the kind of medical background that's, that, that launched it. But you've also been widely adopted in business circles. Your uh, studies on have led to the way people, changes in the way people manage or just think about decision-making bonuses. Have you been surprised by the way you've been picked up by the professional world? Not so much. You know, I think, um, first of all, you know, I started becoming interested in irrationality in, in medicine. But, but for me, nurses were just kind of some people that were making mistakes, right? It wasn't just about nurses. It, it's really about the waste of human potential, right? So you think about all cases in which we have an intuition. And here is what happened. I, I gave a talk to the nurses and the doctors back in the hospital. This was my first academic talk about this stuff. And my, my favorite nurse, Etty, came to me after the talk, and she said, hey, you didn't talk about, you forgot one important thing. I said, what? She said, her pain, right? She said, here she was in the removing my bandages. What about her agony, hmm. right? And she said her agony was more about the duration than the intensity. Hmm. Wow. But we, we agreed that the goal of medical treatment is not to minimize her pain. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but also I said, look, it would be one thing if you did it on purpose, right? You said, oh, this would hurt the patients more, but no. But you said, look, you, you thought this was the right thing. Every time I ask you to make it slower, you said, no, 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 you're wrong. This is the right thing. And the way she described it was very interesting. She said every day she could have done what she was trained to do, which is the quick gripping approach, what her intuition told her to do, what her experience was told her to do for me and for her. But there was this other path of doing it slower and giving me a break and letting me try and relax that that really did not fit her intuition. Because of that, she was never doing it. Now, that's a very basic problem that we all have. We have this issue that we make decisions based on intuition. And, and for me, behavioral economics is really about modesty. It's about this idea of recognizing what we have just intuition about and what we have data, and how do we become modest so we don't trust 100% our intuition. Because if you start doing experiments, you realize so often that you're wrong, that you have to really revisit uh, how you how you build your life. So, look, business is just about people at the end of the day. I mean, there's some other things that are not business, of course, like anti-lock breaks, right? There's no question whether they'll they'll work or not. But but so much is about so much is about how people behave and what really motivates people and what's the the right theory to describe people. What is the right model to describe human behavior? And we don't know a lot of it. I mean, the reality is kind of shocking. You know, when people, you ask people, what's the mystery in life? They say, oh, we don't know much about the stars. We don't know about the ocean. We don't know much about microbiology. The reality is that our own behavior, even though we see it all the time, is something we really don't understand. And the benefit to 
individuals in their own life to business people to policy people by understanding how we function what motivates us is just incredibly important actually dan roth let me ask you this in in hearing kind of that dan arielli's expression of like that it's business is you know it's just about people where you work it's i would say take second fiddle to algorithms does that resonate? Is it interesting that you, Dan Ariely, has been as successful as he is, given kind of where we stand as, you know, in terms of which businesses have actually, you know, have done well in the most recent economy, and which we would largely say don't relate to people? I was actually going to ask, as a follow-up, in a world where we have so much data and you can now make decisions based on data and you can experiment freely all the time, and now it's so cheap to experiment, Right. Um, does the same... Are you operating on a playbook that was true 10 years ago but is increasingly not true, where there are data-based decisions being made more and more? You don't need to find the 200 kids in the MIT school, you know, in the classroom to do an experiment on. Yeah, so, so there are a couple of things here. So one is I absolutely agree that the playground for experiments has increased, right? So we no longer do experiments on undergrads. We do experiments in all kinds of, of cases. Um, but, but I do think we need to separate very strictly big data from experiments. So you see what happened is if you get some data, let's say um, MasterCard, and, and you look at kind of behavior, um, you're basically constrained to understanding the behavior that currently exists. So maybe you can optimize something. But if you ask the question of what can I improve, that's completely unclear. Let me give you an, an example from an experiment we recently did. So this is an experiment we did in Kibera. Kibera is a slum in Kenya. And we're trying to get very poor people to save some money. These are people who live on about $10 a week. And the first thing we wanted to do was to say, how do you get these people to save? Let's create a system in which it's easy to put money in and hard to take money out, right? Kind of overcoming the self-control problem. So we teamed up with M-Pesa, the online payment system through the Safaricom, through the phone, and with the investment bank. So people could text money in, but getting it out, it's not so easy. They have to take a bus, go to the city, mm. uh, submit the form, get the money back, right? So the money was not burning a hole in their pocket. They, it would take some time to get it off. Okay, so everybody got this system, easy in, hard out. And then uh, we try to incentivize people in different ways. Some people, we reminded them every Thursday, hey, it would be a good idea to save 100 shillings this week. Other people, we send them the same text message, but with the name of their kids. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. This is little Joey. It would be a good idea to save hundred shillings this week. Other people, we gave them a 10% match. If you send, save up to hundred shillings, we'll give you 10%. Other people, 20% match. You save up to hundred shillings, we'll give 20%. Other people gave them a pre-match. What is pre-match? Pre-match is using the idea of loss aversion. Loss aversion is the idea that we hate losing more than we enjoy gaining. And if this is the fact, maybe what we could do is we could give people the money up front in the beginning of the week. Hey, we deposited 10 shillings or 20 shillings already in your account. If you save, you'll get to keep it. If not, we take it back. In the final group, we created this coin, and the coin had 24 numbers on the edges sketched. And we asked people every week to take the coin out. It was, we asked them to put it in their house somewhere and to take it out and to scratch that number for the week, week one, two, three, four, and so on, one way, horizontally if they saved and vertically if they didn't save. Right? So think about all of those methods. First of all, none of them exist currently. Right? Mm -hmm. So if we did big data analysis, what would we say? We would say these people don't save. Right. right. So the first thing we did was we created, we said, look, we understand self-control. We understand if people have money in their pocket, they will spend it. So we want to create this system that would allow people to put money in and, and get it, have a hard time out. And just creating the system would never come from big data, but it really helped. Mm -hmm. And now let's think within the different methods, which one do you think helped the most? 
What do you think, which methods people save the most? Text, uh, text from kids, pre-match, post-match, 10%, 20% coin. I'm gonna guess the, uh, I would guess the pre-match. I don't think you wanna lose the money. What do you think? And I'm gonna go with the appeal to the kids. Okay. So, so here's what happened. Um, just reminding people once a week, compared to not reminding them, helped. Yeah. It wasn't particularly good, but it helped, right? It increased savings. So, so there's something, just money, it just reminded, help. Post-match, matching after the fact, was slightly better. 10% or 20% doesn't matter. Pre-match, slightly better than that. And the kids were kind of like pre-match. So if you think about the value of kids, about 20%. So just match. to be clear, my answer was better than Dan's. Uh, no, they were no. equal. They, uh, they were, were equal. equal. Uh, they were equal. Yeah. But mine was more equal. Um, yeah. but, but, but the thing is that the coin, the coin doubled savings compared to everything else. Wow. Now, is that what you would have expected before you... Do you set expectations before you do an I do. I do set expectations. Now, in this case, I didn't know if it would do better or worse. But uh-huh. I'll tell you what this was based on. There was this amazing study that showed that if you randomly open for kids college savings accounts, randomly, by age four, their objective performance on test is higher. How can what? that be? Yeah. Do the kids know they're going to college? Of course not. But their parents know. And they treat, and just as a result of knowing that they've set this long-term goal for their kids up, they treat their four-year-olds differently in terms of scholastic achievement? Not just four. I mean, they treat it from day one. So here's what happens. You, you, your kid got a college saving account with less than $1,000, which doesn't pay for college. But every month you get a reminder that this kid is going to college. Hmm. And, and you don't need to do a lot. Right? Maybe you read to them a few more minutes a day. Maybe you buy them another book. I mean, think about it. Right? Over four years, that's a lot of effect. And actually, in our experiment, we analyzed when exactly in the week people put money in. And what we found was that on every day of the week, people put more money in the coin condition, right? Why? Because it was part of people's physical environment. You go into this hut and you see the coin, and the coin acts as a reminder. Hmm. So, so this is the, the issue, right? Um, the issue is that the moment, I mean, yes, there's a lot of big data stuff we could do, right? But the real question of how to improve humanity, I think, is not going to come from big data. It's going to come from st- trying to think systematically about what are the barriers for good behavior, right? What, what is, what, why don't people save enough, right? And what could we create that would make it more simple and easy and top of mind? And how would we call these accounts? And of course, once we do that, then we want to do experiments mm-hmm. and we want to do to, va- to validate this. But I, I don't believe that simply analyzing the world to death is going to help us. Look, the world is not such a good place. If you said, let's just optimize what we had now, I'm, I'm completely unhappy with this. I think we need to go to a completely different plateau of performance. Hmm. Dan, you've done, you both analyzed and started your own companies. How do you juggle that where you go back and forth or do you not, do you go back and forth between being the outsider and the creator? So, so, you know, for a long time I would write academic papers and then I would think, you know, people could just take the papers and make a company out of this. Uh, but then I realized it's not so easy. I realized that the place where academic leaves something uh, creates tremendous room for how do you actually do it. Uh, so a few years ago I started with uh, two people from computer science at Stanford. We started a, a company and we basically looked at time management. Right? And time is all about opportunity cost. By the way, time is very similar to money. Right? Money is all about opportunity cost. Every time you buy a cup of coffee, you give something else up. Money is the same. Time is the same. Every time you des- decide to do something, you're not doing something else. But the problem is we don't see it. And not only that, but the calendars are really a terrible mechanism. Because what can the calendar represent? They represent meetings. 
So if you see an empty spot, you say, let me put more meetings into this. But the fact is we have lots of things to do. They're just not represented on the calendar. If you want to write a book, and this will take you 3,000 hours, how exactly does it fit on your calendar? If you, have, if you want to go and exercise three times a week, you can't say I'm going to run Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 7 to you know, 7.45. It might change over time. Because that's three more times than Danny exercises, you mean? I mean, that's... <laughs> he he yeah. looks such in such good shape. Though. Yeah, we haven't seen him below. Seven, <laughs> yeah. seven to 7.45 once a year. Yeah. I have it in my calendar. <laughs> and so we basically said, look, let's, let's try to create algorithms for that, mm-hmm. right? And, and um, there's lots of things about time, by the way. So we found, for example, that uh, for many people, the most, two, the most productive hours of the day are the first two hours when people show up in the office, like 8 to 10 or 9 to 11. And many people squandered the time from by doing email and Facebook and, and stuff like that rather than focusing. And it's just, it's just a pure waste. So we started creating software to try and overcome those, those questions. And, and now we're doing more and more of that. So um, actually, we're trying now to, to open a Duke, a little um, incubator. We haven't figured out exactly how we'll do it. We want to, to start in September or October. And we want to basically say, look, lots of companies that are interested in behavioral changes uh, lots of companies have no idea how to do behavioral change. These are like designers, and not to be not nice to designers, but these are designers that all, uh, you know, have never realized that library exists and that people have done lots of experiments on things that they that they care about. And how do we bridge the academic knowledge with the uh, behavioral change uh, that people want to do in health, in financial decision-making, and so on, and, and can we help them? So we're going to try and invite some companies to come and hang out with us for a while. How will you advise those companies? It sounds like from a lot of the work you do, your goal is improving humanity. But sometimes that doesn't reconcile well with a profit motive. Yes. Um, so I don't advise all companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, first of all, we, we, we're selective. I, th- I think profit is great. I mean, I have nothing against profit. Uh, but we want to make sure that we're doing stuff that is actually improving human capacity. So I'll give an example. I'm some time ago, I got a request from a large cigarette company to go and uh, give a day workshop. And uh, I gave them a very high number, and they said, okay. And I called the American Cancer Society, and I said, look, they invited me. If you want, I'll go, I'll give a talk, and I'll give you the check. Hmm. I said, what do you want me to do, and what do you think they said? Don't do it. They said, go. Oh. They said, go? Yeah. But I decided not to go. I decided they don't understand the amount of damage I could cause. Was that an experiment with the American Cancer Society? At what price point would they actually <laughs> so say it's worth say, it? Yeah. Um, so, so I think, you know, there's lots of things where you could do good and make money. And I think those are great cases. And I think at some point we might run out of those cases, but the day is really, really, really far off. Right? Hmm. So right now, if you think about obesity, you think about diabetes, you think about um, wasting time, you think about wasting money, you think about the misery we give to each other. You just, we, we, we identify so many systematic mistakes that could be improved. Hmm. Do you, uh, and, and do you find that when you go into your business mode, that when either starting this incubator or starting a company or shifting from the academic world into the, into the corporate world, that the experiments that you've been doing, you can carry them out? Or is it the kind of thing where you once the practical meets the you know theoretical some of the stuff falls apart so so, so we often find that the results are very similar uh, but but there are challenges and even within a company so i'll give you an example so we did a study with intel the chip manufacturer and we went to their factory and we learned that the way they incentivize employees is the following yeah, these are people who come for four days 
very long shifts, 12-hour shifts, and then they have four days off, four days on, four days off. And on the first day of the first shift, they give people a bonus. They say, look, here's your objective, let's say 1,300 chips. If you get to this objective, you'll get $25 extra. If you don't, you get zero. So it's kind of a threshold bonus. And then no bonus on the second day, no bonus on the third, no bonus on the fourth, four days off, back to the first day and to the bonus. So the first thing we said was, look, let's, let's add a control condition. Let's, let's add a con- condition which we have nothing. Let's see what happens. And they said yes. Hmm. And then we said, let's add another condition in which instead of giving people $25, we'll give them pizza, right? Uh, we'll send them pizza at home after the shift, make them heroes in the eyes of their families. Turns out it was very complex for the HR department at Intel, but eventually they agreed to give people a voucher for a pizza. So it's not exactly pizza, but it's a voucher. And then we said, what about another condition, a fourth condition in which we just send people a nice text message? At the end of the day, if you reach your quota, we said, nice job, and a text message comes from the boss. So imagine these people come on the first day of the shift. Some people are told nothing. Some people said, if you reach this level, you'll get $25. Other people, if you reach this level, you get pizza, a voucher for pizza. Other people, if you reach this level, you get a nice text message from the boss. Another question is, how is performance? So actually, what do you think? What do you think worked the best? Uh, praise. Dan? He runs his own company, so this is what he's hoping <laughs> is the answer. I don't have uh, to pay Co- him. Courtney, Courtney uh, you're doing a good job. <laughs> I'm going to go with uh, the, I actually think the praise is the right answer also. Okay. Yes, of course, because I said it first. <laughs> so, so here's what happened. On that day, on the first day, all three methods worked bet- best, better than the control, and they all worked the same. Right? So text, money, pizza, all were better than control condition, all were identical. But there was also the next day. Now, the next day, there was no bonus, but was there any carryover effect? And here's what happens. The people who got paid on the first day, on the second day, backfired. On the second day, they work worse than the control condition. It's as if they said, yesterday you paid me, I was interested. Today, there's no money, I'm not interested in right. working so much. Right. And then it went up slowly. Now, with these results, we went back to the management at Intel and we said, look, uh, you created this incentive system because you thought it would work, right? You gave people $25. In total, by giving people $25, you actually lost 5% of productivity. Mm-hmm. You didn't gain, you lost 5% of productivity by getting this bonus. We said, why don't we revisit the uh, bonuses, not just for the low employees, but for top management? Mm. What do you think was the interest? Zero. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> Less than zero. Exactly. So, so, so the, the answering your question, I think companies are sometimes interested in doing stuff about consumers, sometimes about low-level employees, but when it comes to deep changes in the company, I think intuition and ego uh, are, are holding people back from, from truly improving what, what they're doing. By the way, um, I didn't tell you the result of the experiment, the end result, so what happened with the, with the compliment, it went up just like everything else, and it went slowly down over time, but it was much, much better. Mm. So, and pizza was in the middle. Right, and you can imagine how if pizza was more like a real pizza, it would look like a compliment, and if it was more transactional, it would look right. It's more the right. meaning behind the yeah. pizza, not the pizza. Itself. That's right. It's the social. It's the social contract versus financial contract. This is, by the way, something that companies just miss big time. Uh-huh. Right, this idea that we work for lots of reasons. We don't just work for money. Yeah, part of it is getting a handshake and appreciation and respect and feeling of progress and all kinds of other things. And, and we often don't take advantage of those other things. And, and it's kind of a shame because everybody loses because companies 
pay more and have less happy employees. Yeah. And, you know, one of the big management uh, questions today is how do you motivate millennials? There's all these people, and I'm not sure if they're studies-based, but people are saying millennials need constant feedback. They need constant praise in order to keep them moving and keep them excited. You're someone who teaches a lot of millennials. Do you think that's true? What do you find about students today? Is this generation different? Uh, this generation is not very different. Um, I think this whole idea that somehow our brains have evolved because people were somehow born a few years later, it's kind of crazy. Now, right. now they do spend more time on Facebook or you know, uh, Instagram and uh, Snapchat. So if you want to reach them, they, they don't read the newspaper in the, same, in the same way. But in terms of actual motivation, you know, how, how evolution doesn't work like this, right? So if you say, uh, how are they tempted? Uh, what motivates them? What is the sense of meaning that they get? How do they get it? All of those are very, very similar. Now, if you leave the deep psychology and you start talking about superficial characteristics, like, you know, are they on Twitter or on Facebook? Then, of course, there's big, big differences. But I'm actually shocked by these uh, discussions about that millennials are so, are so different. There's very, very little evidence for that. Actually, I was just uh, listening to Dave Goboa. He's the CEO of Warby Parker, whose business is made up of 99% millennials, who had the same point. You know that well, it doesn't. You don't define a generation based on what they're doing on social media. You do it based off of what they want, and everybody wants the same thing. They want high quality, low prices, and good service, and that's what every company should be able to deliver. Yeah. Now, if you want to reach them, Facebook is a better place to advertise. Right. But, <laughs> right. but but it doesn't mean that they are different animals. Yeah. All right. Well, let's end on on the time management question, Dan. Of course, we know what we should be doing, getting up in the morning, eagle, you know, to eager to get out and 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 apply the best two hours of the day to deep thinking. Is that what you do? What what are your techniques based on the experiments that you've done? So um, I try lots of things. Um, and it's not easy. And, uh, you know, one of the challenges that things are not easy is that we get lots of requests for all kinds of things that sometimes take priority over the things we we care about. So I I struggle with these things dramatically. And, you know, th- there's no good solution. So hmm. I'll, I'll give you my own uh, kind of example. A few weeks ago, um, somebody uh, wrote me. He recently became a paraplegic. He had an accident, and he was thinking whether he should or shouldn't commit suicide. And he wanted to talk to me about uh, this question. I, I get... No, this is, doesn't happen. Weekly, somebody with some terrible injury writes me to ask me questions about what they should, they should do. And of course, when those things happen, I, I drop everything else and I, um, I try to help to the extent, to the extent that I can. Um, and you know, it's a, it's an amazing thing because on one hand, I feel tremendous privilege that people feel that they can write me. Uh, on the other hand, I have uh, very little control over my. Uh, schedule the moment uh, we live in a world in which everybody could access you and, and ask you ask you question. Um, on the more kind of positive side, um, you know, I've kind of become addicted to uh, gambling, and not uh, financial gambling, but uh, gambling with experiences. That's actually why we had you on the show. <laughs> That's right. to be able to, uh, it's nice. Yeah, we're here for you. Thank we're you. Here for you. Uh-huh. It, it's working out so far. <laughs> you haven't gambled this whole time. Um, <laughs> So, you know, people, people call me up with all kinds of strange requests. Um, so last half a year ago, somebody wrote me and said, hey, would you marry us? Somebody I don't know. Um, and I said, of course. So I signed up to this online church that you can get ordained for, I think, $45. And then I applied for 
licensed in New York City, and last Sunday I married them here in, in New York. And, and, and I have to say it was really interesting because, first of all, it was a tremendous um, you know, honor to, to get somebody to do this. And I, I got to think about you know, what can social science say about the weddings and marriage institution, and what kind of advice could I do, right? I'm not a, they didn't expect me to have religious um, aspect, but I did try to reflect on you know, what, what is this institution and what makes it work and doesn't work. And it was a substantial uh, time investment, but it was also uh, fascinating. So is the gamble gambling with your time? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. It's basically, I, I get lots of odd requests. Yeah. And um, actually, um, I get lots of odd requests. And from time to time, I, I take them. And they become incredibly meaningful and important. Sometimes it's not. But sometimes it's really giving me depth uh, depth through life. But these are risks you can take now in your career, given how successful you've been. The ones that are that are more common that that come through, you know will still be there after you marry these two people. So is that advice you'd give to anyone or just to someone that's achieved your level? so 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 I think um, variability is important to everybody. I think uh, way too early we settle on the same restaurants and the same food and the same sexual positions and we don't vary uh, enough in life. And I think that trying more things is important. The, the world is changing and if we are stuck on doing the same thing, we're not going to keep up and our taste change, uh, change over time. So I think we don't experiment enough. And the reason we don't experiment enough is because of, again, loss aversion, right? That if you try something else and it doesn't work out, you're going to be really miserable. And but the fact is that we have a long life. So you're going to experiment for a really, really long time. Hmm. You remember uh, Samuelson's uh, dilemma. So Samuelson came to one of his colleagues and he said, I have a coin here. If I flip it and it comes on head, I'll give you, let's say, $120. If it comes on tail, you'll give me $100. He said, do you want to play this game? His friend said, no, not interested. The expected value is positive, but I don't want to lose $100. Losing $100 is more miserable than making $120. But then Samuelson said, and what if I ask you if you want to play this game every day? And they basically said, you know, if you ask me this question every day, I would say every day no. But if you ask me in one time, do you want to play this a thousand times? They would say, of course, yes, the positive expected value hmm. is the expected value currently positive. So this is what happened. If you think about decisions in life as one at a time, you might never take enough risk. But when you think about decision as a compound of many decisions, you would, you would actually take more more risk, and I think that's what we need to, to think about. So if you say, look, I just want to go to one restaurant and not fail on that one, that's one thing. But if you said, look, I have about 15,000 more dinner ahead of me, yeah. right? How do I figure out what's the right way to do? Let's spend the first thousand searching and figure out what's really, what maximize my enjoyment. So I think we don't do enough of that. That's, that's great. Good, good advice. We appreciate the uh, spontaneity and experimentation here on Breaking the Mold. Dan Ariely, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to email us at btmshow at icloud.com for any feedback on our talk with Dan. Uh, follow us at Roth Evan on Twitter, and we'll be sharing some of Dan's experiments and his TED Talks on, on the Twitter feed as well. And don't forget to read Ask Dan column in the journal that comes out every week on... Every other week? Every other week. On the weekend? On the weekend. And last week I had a book out with, with um, answers from the column and uh, cartoons by a great cartoonist from The New Yorker. Fantastic. Run out and get it before it's sold out. Thank you very much. Just my socks. What time it is. Breaking the mold wants your feedback. 
please visit our iTunes show page and tell us what you think about the show. Now, back to your hosts. Welcome back, Breaking the Mold. That was interesting. Fascinating. You know, he's he's fortunate because he gets to dream up what he thinks are incredible ways of observing human behavior and then going out and actually doing it. Whether you're in Kenya or whether you're on a college campus, he gets to be able to see whether his hypotheses are accurate or not. And I loved his point, which is that is how he proves it, not through big data, which he completely discounted. You know, he was, we started today's uh, podcast talking about these kind of ultimate insiders in FIFA. And I think about Dan being this kind of ultimate outsider. He views the world Hmm. from a perspective of being outside of it. And I think that comes, it's very clear, it comes from his time in the hospital and from his burns and being in bandages, watching what's what's happening to him. And so he's made a career out of that. It's really fascinating to see how much he's doing that says, I, it doesn't matter what I think. I am, I am an outsider looking in, studying your world. Right. That is true. And, I mean, right, because it came from that incredible description he gave of essentially being mummified and thinking about what was happening to him. And even once the bandages are off and what he's chosen to do and be successful in his profession, it's still at that arm's length. And one of the questions we asked him right after we, we finished the, the discussion with Dan is, has he ever thought about how his life would have been different if he hadn't felt the pain in the same way that he did what he'd had the advantage of more modern techniques, which is essentially to be able to put him into a coma and to avoid the intense pain? And his answer was no, meaning no, I've never thought about it because there's nothing to gain from thinking about it. I don't think he plays in the world of hypotheticals. Absolutely not. That's He's exactly. Eight. He is. He he demands proof of everything. Right. And I don't think he can do that where he's just estimating what 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 what, what might what might have been other paths that might have been that he could have taken. Um, and I thought it was interesting too this idea of, of gambling with time, mm. that he can that he'll take a, that someone will call him up and tell him to do something and he'll quickly decide whether he's going to do it or not. And um, yeah, but I'll say that's I think that's also a function. He's no longer building his career. His career is built. He is a best New York Times bestseller. He is incredibly well-respected within his field. And so it's what challenges him. And what challenges him is not giving another speech. It's the one-off kind of opportunity that makes him think and gets engaged. And I think that's true for anybody you know, at that stage in their career where you're looking for some excitement, something different, not something that you've got muscle memory for. Hmm. Um, but I think, but you know, but I, I, I give him a lot of credit for as much as that's the case, he can still share with us some of the social experiments, right? And not feel like he still doesn't have an, an opportunity to kind of expand on what he really believes are the right ways that we should act and behave to be more rational. And, you know, even the simple stuff like, you know, I, I took away that 8 to 10 a.m. in the morning is our most productive time. And I think about how much time I waste during that time, which is catching up, right? But not actually doing, not trying to figure out where you can optimize your best brain functioning to the time of day and 
that has some calendaring impact. You know, maybe we shouldn't be spending our time eight to 10 jam pack with things that are, you know, either, you know, unrelated to kind of the important stuff that we're determining during the day or, you know, just stuff that like just doesn't matter. You know, that that's not the time, Dan, you should be catching up on your Beetle Bailey comic strips the way you love to read them. You know, I just love the idea that he can go from being ta- talking about what your calendar should look like to major life decisions. Yeah, right. It's pretty, right. He, he, he's looking at the full, uh, he can go from the very narrow to the to, to, to the massive. So super impressive. Great. Great having him on. Um, we look forward to having you all back on very shortly here on Breaking the Mold. Of course, we'd welcome your feedback. Love to hear it. Um, for all of those uh, out there who are listening to this podcast while running on their treadmill, I, I know that we've given you an incredible amount of burst of energy. You can put away all of your goo and your steroids. And you should also appreciate that if you're in the middle of doing a urology um, surgery right now, I'm just hoping that uh, your patient is, is surviving because of the excitement that you must have gained from this podcast. Words to live by. True. Truly words, uh, I mean, first of all, yeah. it's a great catchphrase. Thank you. For breaking the mold. <laughs> I think that, I've, I know you have shirts ready with that, and I'm going to wear them everywhere. Well, but I have the I have the shirts for the athletes, and I have the shirts for the urologists. They're totally, because the catchphrases are different depending right. on which one you follow. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. It's Evan it's Roth for Breaking the Mold. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. You've been listening to Breaking the Mold. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter at BTM Show, through email at btmshow at iCloud.com, and at our iTunes show page. Breaking the Mold is recorded at Mixopolis in New York City.